So we're going to read in 2 Chronicles chapter 14, and we'll read this chapter, although as I said, we're going to be referring to chapter 15 and chapter 16 as well in the narrative as we go uh, through this study together. So from verse number 1 of 2 Chronicles chapter 14, reads, So Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa his son reigned in his stead. In his days the land was quiet ten years. And Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God, for he took away the altars of the strange gods and the high places and break down the images and cut down the groves and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law and the commandment. And he took away out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the images and the kingdom was quiet before him. And he built fenced cities in Judah for the land had rest and he had no war in those years because the Lord had given him rest. Therefore he said unto Judah, let us build these cities and make about them walls and towers and gates and bars while the land is yet before us because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he had given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. And Asa had an army of men that bear targets and spears out of Judah 300,000 and out of Benjamin that bear shields and drew bows 204 score thousand. All these were mighty men of valour. And there came out Against them, Zerah the Ethiopian, with a host of a thousand thousand, a million, and three hundred uh, chariots, and came unto Marishah. Then Asa went out against them, and they set the battle in, a, in array in the valley of Zephathah in Marishah. And Asa cried unto the Lord his God, and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee. And in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God, let not man prevail against thee. So the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people that were with him pursued them unto Gerar, and the Ethiopians were overthrown that they could not recover themselves, for they were destroyed before the Lord and before his host, and they carried away very much spoil. And they smote all the cities round about Gerar, for the fear of the Lord came upon them, and they spoiled all the cities, for there was exceeding much spoil in them. They smote also the tents of the cattle, also the tents of cattle, and carried away sheep and camels in abundance, and returned to Jerusalem. And then chapter 15 begins, And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa, and said unto him, Hear ye me, hear ye me Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you, while ye be with him. And if ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And that will be our reading this evening. Now, the key verse, actually, when you think about this section of chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 16 of Second Chronicles, the key verse is actually the last verse that we read, which is in chapter 15. So chapter 15, verse 2, is the key verse of these three chapters and it says, And he went out to meet Asa and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. So that's our key verse. And the three chapters pivot around that verse. And there's a key statement, not in the text, but a key statement I'm going to make that I'll pick up toward the end. And this really could be like a description of the lesson that we want to learn from Asa. And it's this. Untended fires soon die and just become like a pile of ashes. Just bear that in your mind. Untended fires soon die and just become a pile of ashes. Now we'll pick that up toward the end. So what's the background then? Well, when we break into 2 Chronicles, there's a parallel uh, narrative going on between in the book of Kings and in the book of Chronicles. And there is different emphasis between both narratives. When you come to this second narrative, which is the chronicle narrative of the history of Israel, you discover again that what's been brought before us is the experience of this nation that was so special to God. You remember that way back even in the days of Abraham, God selected Abraham and blessed him and gave him covenant promises. And then down through the history of the Old Testament, you discover eventually that this nation is born. 
and it comes out of Egypt, you remember, led by Moses, out and then ultimately into the promised land. They are a theocracy, which is that God ruled them directly through his prophets and his servants. And then they were dissatisfied with that and they sought a king like the nations round about them. God granted them the request. Saul became their king. He didn't do well. David then became the king, the man after God's own heart. Now this is the line that is of God that ultimately would produce the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the king of kings. But from David to Messiah, well, that's a long time. And you discover as you work your way down uh, the history of this nation that following David came Solomon. And that was a time of great prosperity, a great wealth and expansion of their borders. But then came Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And the nation split into two. So Israel then becomes the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah, Judah and Benjamin. So you have the ten tribes and the two tribes. So then in the history of Israel, it splits up. So you've now got two histories running parallel. And the histories are quite different. When you read the histories of the northern kingdom, following the split, there is not one king in that northern kingdom that leads his people toward God. They all lead their people away from God. And increasingly toward idolatry and wickedness and sin. Eventually, God will tolerate it no more. And he sends in amongst them his discipline and judgment. And they are attacked and conquered by the Assyrian nation. And they are led out of that land that was God's gift to them. Led out of that land into captivity. And as an entity, as a nation, they were never restored out of that captivity. They are called the lost tribes of Israel, even to this day. Now, in parallel to that, what you then have is the history of the two tribes, the smaller nation, which occupied Jerusalem, by the way. And Judah and Benjamin have a different history. So instead of their kings consistently and without exception leading their people away from God, what you have is a kind of good king, bad king scenario that goes on. So you have some kings that were just like the kings of the north and led their people away from God. Asa's father was one of these, Abijah. And then you have kings like Asa, in fact these five what we call revival kings of Judah, who are remarkable men who brought their people back from that idolatry and sought to a lesser and greater degree to reinstate the conditions that existed under the kingship of David. That was their point of reference. They always sought to be known as those who walked in the ways of their father David. That was the accolade they sought. So we're looking at five of these kings, four of them actually we'll look at, who did that very thing, that they brought their people back. They brought them to return to the Lord, to establish them in what was right and godly and pleasing to the Lord. And we're going to learn lessons about that. Now, there are different levels in which we can learn lessons from this. We can learn lessons corporately and we can learn lessons individually for which one of us has never strayed over there. Which one of us who belong to the Lord has never actually drifted into idolatry to some extent, lesser or more, but we've all been going this way. And so to an extent, all of us require that return to the Lord, that reviving of our hearts, that reestablishment of God's ways in our life. That is true. So at that level, there are lessons for all of us to learn in this. And lessons which no matter what stage you're at in your Christian walk, no matter how young or old you are, these lessons are important and vital and we can't miss them. But then also, as groups of God's people, as a corporate entity of assemblies or churches that are gathered around the Lord as his people ought to have been, we too can learn lessons as well. So there are these different levels at which we can make application of the truth that we see demonstrated in the lives of these individuals. So we come to this King Asa and the context. This is the first one we're going to deal with. So who is Asa? 
Well, he is the grandson of Rehoboam. Remember, he is part of the nation of Judah, the two tribe nation. Rehoboam and Jeroboam were the two men over which the kingdom split. So he's a grandson of that generation. He's the third king to rule the southern kingdom of Judah. And he's a rare king. In that, he ruled with stability for a total of 41 years. And the statement in chapter 14 and verse 2 was this. A statement actually that seemed to cover the whole of his life was this. That he did that which was good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. Now that is a good statement to have. I mean, imagine you have that in your tombstone. Whoever it is did that which was good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. That's a pretty good statement to have. Now the spiritual condition of the nation when he became a king was pretty serious. Pretty bad, actually. His father, Abijah, had reigned only for three years in Judah, and he was a wicked king. First Kings 15, verse 3 says this, that he committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his forefather had been. So you have his father, who reigned for three years, who was taking the people of God, the nation of Judah, in this direction, away from God, and as far away from God as he could take them in that short space of time. He also took his people into war and conflict. He attempted to reclaim the northern kingdom as part of his kingdom, and so throughout his reign, there was war, civil war, really, between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom for all the three years of his reign. The people were at war. They didn't know anything of peace. So what you have is a context of idolatry, of wickedness, of immorality, and of war and conflict. It's not good on any level. The grandfather, the father of this man, were not devoted to the Lord, were taking the people of God into wickedness, and then you have Asa. So his father, his grandfather, both of them, two generations, had been going away from the Lord. Now this man comes to the throne. Will he just follow in the footsteps of those who have gone before? Will he just go with the flow, pick up the reins, and just continue on as before? Now this is going to be the repeated challenge of this weekend. The repeated challenge of this weekend is to stop, if you are, to stop blaming other people, to stop attributing personal failure to what you've inherited, whether in your own family or your own spiritual family or whatever context it is, but to actually take responsibility and to seize the initiative yourself and to stand before God yourself and to serve God yourself. Asa could have blamed his father. Could have blamed his grandfather. What a mess he'd inherited. He did neither of these things. What he did was just this. He did that which was good and right in the sight of the Lord, his God. His God. What does that mean? Well, we've seen in chapter 14 in the narrative, it meant 10 years of peace. And that's in contrast to the war of three years. He's got 10 years of peace. His first 10 years were a, were a time of peace. And why was that? Well, number one, he did that which was good and right. And what did that look like? Well, in my authorised version, there's a key word at the beginning of verse 3 of Second Chronicles chapter 14, and it's the word for. So you have the statement in verse number 2, he did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Then you have an expansion of explanation in verse 3 for. This is what was good and right. This is what he did that gained this accolade for, number one, he purged the sin all around him. That's what he did. He dealt with sin first. He will not build on a bad foundation. He will not build on top of that which is contaminated. He will clear it out before he will begin to build. He removed the foreign altars. He removed the high places. He tore down the sacred pillars. He cut down the ashram. Now, what is all that stuff? Well, all of these descriptive terms are describing 
the idolatry of paganism that had been so prevalent amongst the Canaanitish nations before ever Israel entered the land and it had been resurrected. The high places were just hills where the Canaanites set up altars and shrines to worship Baal. And what happened was this, when Israel began to go after idolatry, at first what they didn't do was just worship Baal. What they did was that they adopted the practices of Baal worship and brought it into their own worship. So they then went to the high places to worship the living God. They were told never to do that, never to do that. But that's what they did. They examined the way the pagans worshipped and then they brought that into their worship of the Lord and then eventually they just worshipped the pagan gods. So there was a drift in their worship. Asa sought to remove that and to remove the false worship, to remove the pagan influence. He did it in Jerusalem. Then in verse 5, he expanded out into the whole nation. So he starts right at home and then he spreads it out amongst God's people. So he's purging. He's clearing, he's cleaning house, as the Americans would say. And so he's going to change the nation at their point of worship. That's the first step. And the first change of worship is to purge sin. That's the first change of worship. Not to build that which is good on top of that which is not. Not to pile on that which is good and right upon that which is corrupt and wicked and sinful. You've got to clear out the foundation. And that's what he will do. And it's tough because it's hard to remove ingrained and institutionalised idolatry. It's easier actually to bring it in than it is to get it out. You know that in your own life. It's much easier to take a step away from God than one toward God. For every three you take away from God, you seem to just be able to take one back. It's much easier to drift away than it is to drift towards God. You never seem to drift towards God. You're always against the tide of your own sin and your own uh, complacency. Well, Asa is turning the tide and he's doing so because he's clearing the decks of rubbish before the positive can be implemented. That's an important lesson for us all. You know, sometimes when we drift in our lives, we drift towards sin, and then when we get there, we think, do you know what? I'm going to start reading my Bible, and I'm going to start praying, and everything's just going to be fine. No, everything's just not going to be fine, because you're going to have to face up to that sin. You're going to have to confess and repent of that, and there's stuff you're going to have to clear out your life. And so... You see this, for example, in James. James chapter 1 and verse 21 says this, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So what James is saying is this, before the word will be effective in your life, you need to remove the asbestos layer of sin and defilement that will affect the depth of the word going into you. There's a, there's a kind of barrier of sin and the seed cannot penetrate down the word can't be effective in your heart because there's a layer of sin and defilement over it so you need to clear it out that's what repentance is it's your active decision against sin in your life and steps you take to remove it in order for the word to be effective that's what he did number one he cleared out his his kingdom of idolatry Number two, he sought the Lord. We get that in verse four. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law and the commandment. Now I found this, I found this really helpful. That word seek in verse four is a word that is recurring in our studies. It's a key word. And when you look at the Hebrew word behind the English word seek there, It literally means to trample underfoot. So the picture is, and we've got an expression which is very similar to it, to beat a path. To beat a path. So, you know, folks say, you beat a path to your door. And you have this idea, this nuance of seeking as a habit, seeking purposefully, intentionally, regularly, which means that there is a path beaten out in that direction. Which lets you take that imagery and apply it to your own life. 
So you cannot separate here in this verse the Lord from his word. He commanded Judah to beat a path toward the Lord. And how do you beat a path toward the Lord? Through obedience to his word. One writer said this, you beat a path to the Lord through learning and obeying his word. How well worn is that path in my life? Or would I need a machete to cut down the vegetation to clear a way through? Because I never walk it. My footsteps are never down it. It's all overgrown. I never go to the Lord through his word. You know, if I was to ask you, and this is how I found the challenge of it in my own life, if I was to ask you, in your life, if I was to follow the well-worn paths of your life, where would they take me? Just ask yourself the question. Where would they take you? The well-worn paths. What paths am I talking about? Your thought path. Your well-worn path. The way you always go. You repeatedly go. If I was to follow that path, where does that take? The well-worn path of habit, of friendship, of choice. Where would that take me in your life? Where would you go in my life if you followed those well-worn paths? Well, Asa, he commanded Judah to beat a path to God. That's where they were to go, through his word, to the Lord. And it was to be a regular experience. It was to be as if there was a kind of jungle and there's a, there's a clearing, there's a path. And it's because you've been down that way so often, the path is clear. And it's downtrodden and it's easy to get to and it's familiar. And that's the way you go in life. And so he sought the Lord. And that concept is right throughout the experience of these individuals. It's habit, it's life rhythm, it's it's decisions that you regularly take, it's the way you always go. But mind you, maybe if you were to come into my life and follow some of these paths that would take your destination, I'd be ashamed of. Because that's a path I go down that I wouldn't want anyone to follow me. You see the challenge of it? He sought the Lord. And as he sought the Lord, it had an effect upon others round about him. And he commanded not just him, but his whole nation to seek the Lord God. And so he did. So he cleared out sin from the nation and he active and positively sought the Lord. Thirdly, he prepared for war during peace. So these were 10 years of peace, but during those 10 years of peace, notice in verse 6 it says, he built fenced cities in Judah for the land to rest. You think, hold on, that's counterintuitive. Surely it's in times of war that you build defences. Surely it's in times of war you invest in your armed forces. Not so, Asa, it was in times of peace. How often has our nation learned that lesson to our cost, that in times of peace you prepare for war, not during times of war. And so he, in times of war, he prepares, in times of peace, he prepares for war. There's no complacency here. He knows that his nation is surrounded by enemies. He is a peace for 10 years, but he knows the peace will not last. So during that peace, he prepares for war. We were thinking about this in Bridgie Weir a few weeks ago because we are going through uh, some studies on the Christians' warfare. And when I was thinking about this, this is what I came up with, that before we come to Christ, we have one enemy. Only one. That's God. Everything else in life facilitates that which is sinful within our hearts. The only enemy we've got is God. Through our own rebellion. Romans 8, 7 and 8, the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so they that in the flesh cannot please God. It's a dysfunctional relationship. I'm God's enemy. Enemies in my mind by wicked works, the Bible says. And I have friends, believe it or not, 
I have friends. And you also, before you were a Christian, you had friends. When you became a Christian, you may not have had so many, but when, before you're a Christian, you get friends, but you've actually got three friends before you become a Christian in the Bible. And those are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let me show you that. So that from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, this is before you're a Christian. It says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked before you're a Christian. You followed the course of this world. There it is, the world. Following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all live, in the passions of our flesh. There's the third one, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Three enemies. Three friends, sorry. One enemy. God's our enemy, the world, the flesh, the devil, they're our friends. But when you become a Christian, it flips. You've now got one friend and three enemies. God is now your friend, but the world, the flesh, and the devil are now your enemy. They're now in conflict with you, and you're in conflict with them. Let's prove it from Scripture. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, he that does the will of God abideth forever. That's the world. The world is not a friend. Secondly, the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and verse 17 says this. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. There's the flesh. So we've got the world, the flesh, and the devil. First Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. They are three enemies. So we're in conflict. But it may seem as if we're at peace. But actually we're at conflict. Because life is a war. And when you think about that, it is no wonder Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians in chapter 6, says this, that we are to take on the whole armour of God so that you will be able to withstand in the evil day. So you don't wait until you're in the conflict. You take on the armour of God now that prepares you for the evil day when Satan comes calling, as he will. Make no mistake. In one way or another, he will come calling and there will be a particular time or times in your life where you are the object of satanic onslaught. And in the meantime, you need to prepare for that day. That's what Paul says, for that evil day. Because like Asa, the time to prepare for war is during peace. When things are going well, you don't get complacent. That's where we fall and we fail because during peace time when life is trundling along and all is going well, we become complacent and our guard goes down, then suddenly we're into conflict. Suddenly Satan has targeted us. Suddenly the flesh is stirred and temptation abounds and we're lost. Why? Because we didn't prepare for war in times of peace. We just trundled along. How many folk do you know? How many do I know? Who have been coasting along in their Christian life and a crisis comes into their life of one sort or another or a temptation at their workplace. You know, a relationship develops between a man and a woman or whatever in their workplace and the Christian has just drifted into it. Before you know where they are, they're down morally. Why? They didn't prepare for war in times of peace. They had no armour on. Someone out there in the world just gets absolutely dazzled by business and by money and by fame and success or whatever it is out there or what, in whatever way you see this applying in your life. It can be anything. The world, the flesh and the devil and suddenly in times of peace the guard goes down, you become complacent and down you go. Down you go. Remember this. It was when David was at his zenith of success militarily that he stood in the top of the house and he saw another man's woman and it began the most unhappy period of his life. Because in times of peace, he had not prepared for war. 
What about us? Oh, the Lord gives times of peace. Gave Asa times of peace. Verse 6, it says, He built fenced cities in Judah for the land of rest because the Lord had given him rest. There are times in our life where the Lord gives us rest. Where things are not stressful and difficult and things are not um, severe in relation to sin and we're doing okay. The sea is calm. But of course... That never lasts. It cannot last. Because you and I know that when the sea is calm, we do not do well spiritually. We don't. The disciples didn't and now do we. So what happens to Asa? Well, the peace is broken. And the Lord that gives peace allows something to happen. And an enemy turns up. To fight against them. Well, we read in verse number 11 when this enemy, this overwhelming force, a million men, a force much greater than theirs, they come out to battle and Asa takes it to the Lord. And listen to his prayer in verse 11 it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with few. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee. Does that sound familiar? Our shield and our defender. For we rest on thee. And within thy name we go against this multitude. You see, they bring before the Lord, remember, preparing for war in times of peace. Uh, And then the war comes. So what do they do? Do they run behind their walls and say, this is what we prepared for? You know, our preparation is sufficient. No, they didn't. They say, they ran to the Lord and said, Lord, help us. We've been preparing for this day and our preparation for this day has brought us to a point of realisation that we are completely dependent upon thee. And so they come in prayer expressing that dependence because their fight is his fight. This is echoes of David going down to meet Goliath in the valley. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. That's what David cried when he went down to feet fight the giant. He didn't say, you know, Lord, give me a good aim with that stone and I'll absolutely crush this. He just said, Lord, this is your battle. I'm going as your servant. And the result is that the whole world will know that you are able. Utter dependence. But here's the challenge in that, though, for you middle-aged folk like me. It's quite a challenge to remain dependent upon God when you've had peace for 10 years. How do you remain dependent upon God when there's been peace for 10 years? Do you think about that in your own life and my life? Even take the number 10. Take 10 years. Hawk and foil, 10 years. There we go. Cast your mind back 10 years. Some of you can't do that, but some of you can. And this is the challenge for those of you who can. 10 years. Imagine 10 years where things went well. Financial problems? No. Relational problems, no. Family comes along and doing well. You've not been in hospital by the bedside. You've not been um, looking for a job. Things have been going pretty well. Ten years of peace. How do you remain dependent upon the Lord for ten years? That's a challenge. And Asa did And he faced an overwhelming force. He had a decent-sized army and resources and so on, but there was a difference between him and David. (coughs) David had been there before. And he relies upon his experience with God in the same type of situation. So he actually speaks about it, and he, he, he leans upon the fact that God has helped him against an enemy before, and so he'll help him again. Well, it's great you can do that. But what if you've never experienced that? What if you're like Asa and you've only known peace? So this is not like David. This is different. So what is it that will enable him to remain dependent upon God when the, when the war comes, when the battle comes? He's got no past experience of conflict. He's, never, he's not able to, to cast his mind back to the day when he destroyed a lion or a bear uh, and against overwhelming force, God gave him the victory. And he said, well, God will do it again. No, he doesn't have that. 
And what does he have? He has a well-beaten path to walk down. That's what he has. He has a way he can go that he always goes. And that seeking the Lord during peacetime. He sought the Lord. He went down that path all the time by his word, by the laws and commandments toward God. In a time of crisis, where does he go? Right back down the same path. Because that is the well-beaten path of his life. So in the crisis when it comes, with no experience of this, what he does have is a habit of life that takes him to the Lord. Independence. Listen, you don't need to have gone through things multiple times to be dependent upon the Lord when the crisis comes. Because there's always a first time. Always. But if multiple times in your life, as a habit of life, and a rhythm of life, you are walking toward God through his word. You get the metaphor. That's the, that's the direction of your life. That's the, the instinct that has been built into your life. It's not that you're plucking a verse out of here or there everywhere and it's like, a, it's like a, a magical slogan. It's rather this, that through life you've been taking God's word and through his word you've been coming to God and you've been coming to the Lord and you've been seeking the Lord through his word. Not in some sort of magical, grab a verse here, there, and everything will be fine. But you've been proving God and testing, yes, and being tested. And this is the direction of your life. So when it's good, that's the way you go. And then when it's bad, that's the way you go as well. That's the way you go. But listen, if you've never been down that path, you won't know which way to go. You'll be lost. And that's sometimes what happens to us. We're scrambling around, lost. We're trying to rely on other people's experience. We're trying to follow them down a path of their own making and all the rest of it. We have no personal experience of God <coughs> ourselves. What a challenge. If I was to ask the younger ones here and Maybe as older ones too. Actually, it doesn't matter to any of us. Do we have any personal experience of God? Through his word, we've come to know him, to love him, to learn of him, to follow him. Not piggybacking on it, just you and God seeking him. Ten years of peace. And at the end of it, war. But he was ready. He was ready. Listen, the evil day will come. Younger folk, I tell you, the evil day will come. You will know experience in life, for your life will be no different from everyone else's. And I know at your age, you hardly think it could be possible, but it will happen. And it can happen in any number of ways. That suddenly, as a Christian, you're under pressure severe pressure you're being tested it can happen in work in family in health in relationship it can happen in, in any area of your life and suddenly the squeeze is on and when the squeeze is on what are you going to do are you going to stand or are you going to fall he's a stood well you know God is not done with them because we then have the next 15 years so that's the first 10 years don't worry, it won't take as long as the next two sections. But uh, the next 15 years, and I haven't read the passage, which is chapter 15, deals with the next 15 years. So you need to read that to get the narrative of what's going to happen. I'll try and summarise it. So what happens is that they, they've come out of that fantastic experience. So it, in our kind of terminology, he's been coasting along and then, whoom! Yes, this spiritual mountaintop experience, high, absolutely buzzing. I mean, it's amazing. God has actually proved himself in the most unbelievable way. He's won a huge victory. So what happens is this. God speaks to him. Through a prophet, the Spirit of God comes upon Azariah, the son of Odin, and he appears in the page of Scripture just like Melchizedek does when Abraham's coming back from a victory. 
God intervenes with Abraham, God intervenes with Asa. It's interesting that, because perhaps winning a battle in this war is the most dangerous time of your spiritual experience. You know, you take it down to little things. If you have managed to witness to someone in college, school, or university, or work, whatever, and you're feeling good about that, that's just like a very dangerous time. If you face the temptation and you have overcome that temptation, you've said no. You're in a time of spiritual danger. I've known that in my own life. I'm sure you will as well. I've come after weekends like this or other times where it's been a, it's been a great spiritual experience and you felt really blessed of the Lord and all the rest of it and come Monday morning, boom, right back there. It's a strange thing. But it's true. And the Lord intervenes. And he's going to give a message to this King Asa. And mind you, he did it well because his legacy, the prophet's legacy was this. He encouraged the king and he changed a nation and he brought about a peace that lasted for another 20 years. I mean, that's a good day's work. That's what the prophet did when he brought the message of God to this king. And the lesson was a simple one. And there's no greater time to learn this lesson than at the point of victory. And the lesson that Asa and the people of Judah had to learn in the moment of victory was proximity to God must be the continuous and distinctive feature of his people. To stay close to God was life. To drift from him was death. And that was the, that's the message and why, why deliver that message at a time when Asa has shown that he was close to God, that he'd walked down this beaten path in his life and he'd known success because that's a time of vulnerability. It is a time, I can't impress that upon you uh, too strongly, that you are extremely vulnerable when you have known victory. It's terrible, but it's true. It's such a crucial issue. I mean, here's Asa. He may actually have been coming away thinking, you know what? Why bother continuing all these reforms and changing the nation toward God? The surrounding nations are still attacked. They've come back and started attacking us again. All sorts of things are going through his head. Azariah, he prophesies, he encourages the king to be strong, to continue the reforms. That's exactly what Asa did. I love this. You know what he did? He just upped the ante. So he didn't, he didn't, he got to a stage of victory and it wasn't enough. He wasn't like, that's brilliant, that's going to be, that's going to define my whole life. No, no, no. No, he said, I'm, I'm, like, he's going for it again. He's up in the ante. That's been 10 years. What about the next 20 years? Well, in the next 20 years, if you read down the chapter, you discover this. He removes all idols from the land, including his mother's personal idol. Goodness knows what that was. But he removed even his mother from the, her official position as queen mother. He got right in there, his own family. He restored the altar and the temple. He returned all the sacred utensils. He gathered the people together to worship. And he renewed the covenant of the people with God. And he even brought people from the ten tribes in the north. And he drew them down toward Judah in verse number 9. Because he's wanting the whole nation to seek God. And God blesses him with peace and with prosperity. So much so that until the 35th year of his reign... There's, there's peace. You see what he does? He pushes on. It's been good for 10 years. You've done well. Don't rest in your laurels. You're not finished. You're only a fraction of the way there. Push on. Now, how many of us, you know, we've seen a little done for the Lord and we've downed the tools and we've gone, that's it. You know, fantastic. Right over to the next generation. That's it. Their turn. You know, I've moved, I've moved the needle, you know, half a degree, and now that's it. No, Asa. He got a word from the Lord, and in his time of victory, he takes God and his word, and he says, you know what? I'm going to put that into practice in my life, and I'm going to really go for it. So he did. Chapter 15 is fantastic. <coughs> Chapter 15 is just accelerator, down, hard. Go for it. Thanks, and as he did that, God blessed him. So then what happened? He's a period of six years at the end of his life. 
Now we come back to this statement that I made at the beginning. <coughs> Untended fires soon die and just become a pile of ashes. I tell you, Asa burned brightly. You know, tomorrow night there'll be a big fire over there. All the juice that came, thanks Tom, all the juice came in boxes. I've got boxes and boxes and boxes ready, just chucking this fire. And that's going to burn really brightly. But do you know what? See when we all walk away. After about half an hour or so, just a pile of ash. Untended fires can burn very brightly, but they actually just become ash. Paul said to Timothy, stir up the gift of God which is in you. That expression, to stir up, is literally to get the poker in a fire and to rake the fire. If you've got a fire, you'll know the pleasure of that experience, and you rake the fire. What are you doing? You're letting the fire breathe by getting rid of the rubbish. You don't get rid of the rubbish, the fire doesn't breathe, it just dies. So what we have here is a last six years, and here is a challenge. I've challenged the younger ones here, and I'm going to challenge the older ones here. It's possible for those in this room who have sought the Lord in your life, and you have. And you've enjoyed his fellowship and his presence and his blessing in your life, and you've enjoyed it. It's possible for the fire to be going out right now because it's untended. It's possible to forsake the Lord toward the end. What a challenge. Well, he's tested again right at the end. You know, some people in the Bible, they did their best things for God right at the end of their life, and some people in the Bible did their worst things for God. If you read chapter 16, you have this six-year account. I won't go into the narrative, other than there is, again, conflict that's coming down from the north this time. He panics. You say, where's the beaten path now, Asa? He's not on it. I don't think he's been on it for a while. Complacent, he panics, he strips the temple in his own house of all the gold and silver he has, and he goes and bribes the king of Syria. So the king of Syria attacks, what's his name? Basha or Basha, who's, who's, who's making inroads in the north. And it's a fantastic military strategy which works to perfection. So it does. The plan works. Asa dismantles all the, the inroads of the northern attack, and actually it turns out really well. Military genius. Seems a great plan. The problem is God wasn't part of it at all. So here is a man in his older years who had lived a life of dependence upon God, that well-beaten path, who had known triumph and victory, who had pushed on in the middle years of his life. And here he is toward the end of his life. And what happens is this. He forsakes the Lord. And he depends upon his own wisdom. You say, but a man like that's got a lot of wisdom. Yeah, but God's not interested in his wisdom, even at an old age. He's interested in dependence throughout the whole of our lives. And so the prophet comes to him, again in verse 7, you read down through chapter 16, there's a parallelism, you remember he faced an enemy, the Ethiopians, then you remember God sent a prophet, now he's faced another enemy, not too well, and God sends another prophet. And this time in verse number 7, the prophet comes to Asa and says to him, because you relied on the king of Syria, here's the word rely, dependent. You, you didn't depend on God. You depended on the king of Syria. And you did not rely on the Lord your God. The army of the king of Syria has escaped you. So number one, your triumph is not as it could have been. Secondly, you have done foolishly in this, for now on you will have wars. So God removes his peace. God had given him peace. God takes the peace from him. If you want to fight a war without God, then you will have wars aplenty without the help of God to fight them. There are always consequences for our actions. Well, he did not react well to that. In fact, he was so angry in verses 9 to 10 of chapter 16, he was angry, he put the prophet in prison, 
and he was in a rage, and then he inflicted cruelties upon his own people. What an absolute disaster. So he attacks the prophet who was the messenger of God, and then his whole character and demeanour towards the Lord's people changed, and he inflicts cruelty on them. But this man had led the Lord's people well for a lifetime. And in six years at the end of his life, he's inflicting cruelty upon the people of God. For 35 years he had done well. And in his middle years he'd done exceptionally well. But in six years his whole life ended with him. Do you know, it even says right at the end of chapter 16, in the 39th year of his reign, he was diseased in his feet. He had bad feet. And his disease became severe, yet even in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. What is he? He's a secular humanist. 2,800 years before that phrase was ever coined. That's what he is when he dies. He's a secular humanist. He is not seeking after God. You see that pathway that was so well trod for 35 years? It's all overgrown now. There's another path in his life that's been beaten and it's toward human wisdom and ingenuity and his own resources. May God preserve us from ever walking down that path. May God preserve us from finishing that way. Let us take the lessons that are good from the most of this man's life and let us make sure that we follow that well-beaten path he did for the most of his life. Let's just pray.